Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today, we're going to be learning Buddhist chanting. This is the third class of our four-part series where I've been introducing you to the benefits of chanting, and then we've actually been learning the chants, the translations. We've been chanting together as a group. Some individuals did some chanting last week. So this week, what we're going to be doing is we're going to end up doing the chants together three times as a group, and then on that third time through, we're going to end up going into meditation and doing meditation together. Then after our meditation, we'll come out with some chants again and open things up to any questions that you guys might have. As you guys know, as part of chanting, we end up bringing our palms together in the front of our sternum and actually doing chanting. And if you've seen the classes that I teach online or if you've interacted with me in person, you see that before class and after class, I always bring my hands up to my face and do a little bit of a bow, and I use Thai words, and I say sawadikap. This sawadikap means hello in a very polite and kind way, and it also means goodbye. That's why we use it in both times. But I thought I would talk about this gesture a little bit that we call a Y. This Y, or bringing the hands together in this position in front of your face and doing a little bit of a bow, it's used in Thai culture, but it's also used in places like India and other parts of Asia as well, where we bring our hands together and we do a little bit of a bow. Well, it's a great way to say hello or say goodbye to people, kind of acknowledge each other, where in Western cultures, we might shake each other's hands or even give hugs, where in cultures here, like in Thailand, the way to greet people is to bring your hands together and then do a little bit of a bow. So it's a nice way to greet each other. But not only does it say hello, but it says, hello, I respect you, which is very different than a handshake. A handshake is hello, nice to meet you, which is wonderful. And we oftentimes do a little bit of a firm handshake to show confidence and look people in the eyes when we're doing a handshake. With this why or whatever we would like to call it, it's a way to say hello and acknowledge each other's presence, but it's also a way to say, I respect you. Right. And I'm interested in being polite, kind, friendly and respectful to you. And this is a gesture that you can do when you're close with people in terms of proximity and physical distance. But you can also do it when people are really far away. Like today, walking through our village, we went on a family walk and families will oftentimes walk around our village. As I see different villagers in the village, I will why them, even if I've never seen them before. They can be really far away. They can be, you know, 100 meters away or 50 meters away and I can just catch their presence out of the corner of my eye and I can say hello and I can say I respect you all at one time 
from a distance without even interacting with them close up. The other thing that it does is it adds to your practice some humility and helping to empty out conceits or the ego. So when you bring your hands up to your face and you're bowing your head, it's kind of like allowing the ego or any conceit to empty out of the mind where you're kind of acknowledging that you're showing humbleness, you're showing respect, you're kind of putting yourself below people without putting yourself below people. If that makes sense, you're not saying that I am below you. You're just saying that, okay, I'm humble. I'm my mind is going to be tamed here. You're saying this to yourself, right? You're maybe thinking like, okay, I don't want to be real boastful. I don't want to have the chest pushed out, the shoulders all squared up with a stern look on my face and give this real stern handshake to somebody. I'm going to kind of soften all of that. I'm going to say hello. I'm going to say I respect you and then I'm going to at the same time think about being humble as you're whying to somebody. And this is something that, like I said, we do here in Thailand. It's done in India and it's done in all other parts of the world. And it's starting to come more and more to Western countries because I see even on the news, I see at award shows where celebrities are getting awards. They will oftentimes thank the audience by bringing their hands together and saying thank you and do a little bit of a bow. And now with COVID and not necessarily being interested in making physical contact with people, I think this gesture is kind of spreading around the world even more, you know, rather than like a fist pump or hitting elbows with each other, which I see some people do. What I'm noticing more and more is people are bringing their hands together and they're actually whying to each other. So if you choose to do this, you can think of it in that way as those three different aspects is saying hello, acknowledging someone's presence or saying goodbye. You're also saying, I'm interested in respecting you, right? That's what you're doing when you're when you're whying to somebody. And then you're also working to be humble yourself and ensure that you don't have any ego as you're interacting with people around you. So this can be a very powerful aspect of your practice. It takes all of two seconds, three seconds to actually gesture to somebody in this way, but it really has this real meaning and this real effect in your relationships with people and with your own mind. And as you why, you know, you don't want it to be real fast, like a really quick, short thing. You'd like it to be nice and graceful, nice and peaceful. So you just kind of gradually will why as you interact with people or you even see people from a distance. So something for you guys to understand as you take classes with me and you see me whying before class and after class, this is a way of me to say hello or goodbye to you guys. It's a way of saying I respect you and I have respect for you. And that's also a way for me to make sure that there's no ego as I'm sharing these teachings, that I'm always working with everybody around me, never assuming that the ego is gone and always working to be humble and down to earth. So it might be something you choose to incorporate into your practice at some point as well. So these Buddhist chants that we've been learning, let's go ahead and look at them. There's three that we've been learning. One is called the Triple Gem or the Triple Jewel. The other one I call the Namotasa, and then the other one is the ETP So. So what I thought we would do is since we're now in our third class and we've all had a chance to learn these and maybe even you've been practicing these for about two weeks or so, maybe longer, 
is we'll just go through them three times as a group. And on that third time at the end, we will just go into meditation and benefit from some meditation. And then as we exit out of meditation, do this three chants together as well. So I'd like to go ahead and invite you to get comfortable for chanting. And you probably would like to be in a position that you will typically meditate in, whether that's in a chair or on the floor or something else, because after we get to the third iteration of these chants, we'll go ahead and move right into meditation. So bring your hands together, palm to palm in front of the sternum, and just take a nice deep breath and let's chant together. Arahang Samma Samhoto Mahakawan Portang Mahakawan Hang Apivate Ami Savakato Mahakavata Tammo Damang Namasami Supatipano Mahakavato Savakasanko Sanghang Namami Napmor Hasabhakavato Arahato Samasamputasa Napmor Hasabhakavato Arahato Samasamputasa Napmor Hasabhakavato Arahato Samasamputasa Vitipiso Mahakawa Arahang Samasamhoto Vichacharanang Samhono Sakato Rokavito Anutero Purisa Dhamma Sati Satatava Manusanam Puto Pakavati Okay, if you need to get a little sip of water or something, maybe massage the vocal cords a little bit if you're just getting them warmed up. And uh, we'll start over at the uh, beginning and uh, go through our second time here. All right, so bring your hands together, a nice deep breath. Arahang Samasamhoto Mahakawa Portang Maha 
get your little drink of water or massage your vocal cords and before we start this third iteration I'll just share that this pace that I'm doing is actually the real pace that I do when I'm actually chanting before and after meditation because remember as part of the benefits that I talked about with chanting is it's a way to ease the mind into meditation so this is a great way to just kind of slow the mind down and just kind of relax the mind and ease the mind into meditation so you get more benefit out of the meditation. So if you are noticing that you're chanting a lot faster than what I'm chanting, then that's typically because the mind is kind of running forward and it has this craving and it's, it's trying to move through things fairly quickly. Or if you're maybe going slower than this, maybe the mind is a little bit lethargic or a little bit complacent. So try to find that middle for yourself where the mind isn't complacent and it isn't running forward, but you can just kind of ease it into meditation with a nice slow tempo. And as we talked about last week, that nice kind of um, beat, that little uh, metronome, you know, having that consistency in your chant where there's just this consistency all the way through will help to almost make it trance-like and kind of methodical as you kind of move through the chant and just kind of ease the mind into meditation, getting the mind into a state where it's observing the breath, it's observing the mind, it's developing this concentration, and then it just eases the mind into meditation. 
So on this third time through, we'll go ahead and do the same thing, you know, the same pace, the same three chants, but then we'll just slip into meditation. I'll give you guys some guidance as part of moving into meditation. And then I'll give you that nice long gap in order to work on the mind. And then we'll come out with some chanting as well. So let's go ahead and start this third chant and we'll just move right into meditation after this. Take a nice deep breath here.
bring the mind to the breath, the sound of the breath, or the sensation of air moving into the nose. This is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath. Breathing in. And out. Breathing in. And out. Wherever you notice that the mind is not on the breath, cut that off, let it go and come back to the breath, the present moment. The mind can be peaceful when it's in the present moment. Breathing in. And out. I'm gonna be quiet now let you do the work, fixating the mind on the breath. And anytime you notice the mind's not on the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. You have nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. No one needs you right now. Just focus on the breath. Breathing in and out.
things up for any questions that you guys have related to chanting and meditation or anything along this path the way that you can ask questions is put those into facebook youtube or zoom and our moderators will see that and get your question asked during the class and if you're in zoom you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly i see that donnie has his hand raised so let's start off with donnie sure sounds good Hi, teacher. Uh, during meditation, when we have a thought that's going on in the mind, that's going on and on, uh, is it better to step aside and watch it from the side? Or should I take a more proactive approach to say, okay, there's a thought, let it go, let it go, let it go? Yeah, you would like to just let it go, train the mind to let go. And depending on what's going on in your life and how significant of a thought it is, sometimes it's easier said than done because the mind's in the process of being trained. 
So it's not always so easy to just let it go. So if you need to say in the mind, you know, every once in a while, let it go, let it go, let it go, it just kind of almost coax the thought out of the mind, go ahead and do that and then kind of allow the thought to slowly drift away. Even though I talk about it as cutting off the thoughts and letting it go, that's, like I said, not so easy depending on how significant the thought is. And sometimes you need to kind of coax it out of the mind with maybe a little bit of audible, let it go, let it go. And, you know, as you're breathing in slow and I think about let it go on the out breath, right? When I used to need to do that, like, cause you're kind of letting it go out through the out breath. And that can be a nice way to train the mind and kind of coax it into letting go. And over time, as your mind gets more and more trained like this, it won't be so challenging. But depending on the significance of the thought and how far along you are in your training, it can sometimes be challenging and using that little bit of audible guidance can kind of help you to let it go in the mind. Thanks, Joe. You're welcome. Is it common, David, that as we begin our sessions, we would have a lot of thoughts coming in and it may take 15 to 20 minutes before we really have much quiet in our mind? Yeah, I remember when I first started meditating, it was like a brick wall. It was like a bombardment of thoughts for many, many months, if not years, because I, I really didn't know what I was doing when I was meditating. I didn't have guidance to help me. And uh, I was just kind of dabbling and didn't really know what to do. But it was like a brick wall for a long time and just a bombardment of thoughts. The way that I think about the unenlightened mind when we're off this path as things are happening to us and we don't even know there is a path, essentially we're just sweeping the dust under the carpet. And that's what we're doing is we're just burying all the thoughts in the mind. And then as we start meditating, it's like pulling back this carpet and the dust starts flying around. And now you got all this bombardment of thoughts. And it's not until you've been meditating for a significant period of time that those thoughts start to diminish. And the Buddha calls it stilling the mind or quieting the mind. This is what the Buddha says is that you're stilling the mind, you're quieting the mind. He never says that you're going to completely eliminate thoughts. And you can know this for yourself, that you're never going to completely eliminate thoughts. Because even if you're in meditation and you notice that the mind is so peaceful and so calm, and you get these long periods of time when there's no real thoughts, it's just kind of the mind is stilled or quiet, you're going to have the thought, wow, the mind is so peaceful, <laughs> the mind is so still. Well, that's a thought. So you would like to just sit with the breath and sit with the breath. You're never going to get to a time where no thoughts are coming at all. What you're doing in meditation is training the mind to more easily observe when it's not in the present moment and then more easily let it go and cut it off whatever thought you are having so that you can still the mind or quiet the mind. And there may be periods of time where you have weeks of peacefulness or days of peacefulness in your meditation and then because meditation is impermanent just like other things then what you're going to notice is there's going to be times where you have bombardment of thoughts where this dust is flying around in the room because you've pulled back more of the carpet so this is completely normal the only thing that's going to bother you is if you get a week or two or three or even a day two or three of peacefulness and the mind expects and craves and wants that to be permanent, 
then as soon as you start getting more thoughts in your meditation, you're going to be like, whoa, what's wrong? I'm doing something wrong because last week the mind was so peaceful. This week I'm having all these thoughts. What's wrong? And then the mind starts craving that peacefulness from last week. Well, that's the problem right there is that craving, desire, attachment, craving for things to be permanent. You have to even recognize that your meditation practice itself is impermanent. And you're not going to get this permanent stilling of the mind, this permanent quietness of the mind until the mind's enlightened. So even in that first, second and third stage of enlightenment, your meditation is going to be rocky sometimes. And then as you move further and further and further along this path, clearing out craving, anger and ignorance, clearing out those 10 fetters, as you get more and more of that pollution out of your practice, then every single meditation will be completely quiet, completely still. You'll still have an occasional thought, but they're really long and infrequent. You know, the the duration between them, the frequency is very few. And there's this really long duration between the thoughts. So you'll have a thought and then it'll be this long duration and the mind will be still and quiet. And then you'll have a thought. And as soon as you have that one thought, you'll notice it right away and you'll pull the mind back right away. As you get rid of all that pollution and the mind is more well-trained, you'll be able to observe right away when the mind's off the breath and you'll be able to let it go right away and bring it back. And that will happen very infrequently and there'll be these long duration between your thoughts. But even when the mind's enlightened, you're still going to experience an occasional thought here and there. So just be aware that don't allow the mind to crave that peacefulness that you maybe got for one day or one week or one month, that where you observe that things are shaken up in your practice and your meditation isn't as peaceful and calm as it once was, don't crave what you had before, but just know that what you were doing is what led to that peacefulness. So now that the meditation is rocky, just keep doing it. Just keep staying dedicated to it. Because just like the peacefulness was impermanent, the rockiness in your meditation is impermanent too. If you experience peacefulness at one point, then now that it's rocky, you can get back to that peacefulness. It's just a matter of not wanting it, not craving it. So if you get rid of the craving to want the peaceful mind, then it will be more likely to move back to that as you deal with the impermanence of your meditation now being shaken up a bit. So in general, in our meditation, it's not that we won't have thoughts, but our thoughts will be less distracting? Yes, they'll be not as frequent. There'll be a longer duration between them. They won't be as strong as you get further on the path. But as long as the mind has this pollution in it, which it will until you get all the way to enlightenment, it's going to have the 10 fetters. It's going to have the three poisons. It's going to have all the various things that the Buddha talks about that are unwholesome. Those things are in there. And that's what's polluting the mind. And as long as that's in there, whether you're in meditation or you're outside of meditation, you're going to have periods of time where the mind's shaken up. This is part of the impermanence of your practice. But what you're doing is now in the past where your mind would get shaken up and you didn't know why it was shaken up. And we maybe blamed other people for shaking our mind up. Or maybe we became very introverted and we became fearful and we kind of ran and hid in the corner because we didn't understand this world around us and we just wanted to like retreat from everything rather than doing that 
now what you do as part of this path is you understand why you're having these thoughts. You understand why the mind's shaken up. You understand what the discontentedness is. It's craving, desire, attachment. And now you have the tools. You have meditation. You have generosity. You have loving kindness and loving kindness meditation. You have the whole eightfold path. All these different tools that the Buddha is teaching you along with the seven factors of enlightenment and so many other tools that you use where now in the past you didn't know what the problem was and you didn't know what the solution was. Now the difference is you have wisdom. By practicing this path and walking on this path, you have the wisdom to know what the problem is and know what the solution is. And if you don't know, that's where you reach out to your teacher and you're like, hey, I'm having this problem. I'm noticing this and I'm not quite sure what it is. Can you help me? You know, what, what is the solution to this? And then your teacher helps you with that because they're further along on the path than you are. So they're going to be able to help you and provide you guidance. Where in the past, you just walked around with a shaken up mind and we blamed everybody else in the situations and we were fighting through all that craving, anger and ignorance that we didn't even know was there. Where now we know that pollution is there. We know that we're the ones causing the discontentedness. So now it's just a matter of putting it under a microscope in clearing it out. And now we're working on the real problem, which is our own mind. And that's why we can see the progress because we're working on the real problem. Where in the past, when we weren't on this path, we were going around blaming other people and pushing people out of our life, but yet things never got better. They just always keep crashing on us and we kept falling down and we couldn't understand why. And it's because we weren't focused on the real problem. Where now with this wisdom of the Buddhist teachings, we're focused on the real problem, which is our own mind. But that's going to be a gradual process of clearing out that pollution. And you're going to have these ups and downs throughout your daily life and throughout your meditation. But they should be over time getting further and further away from each other. And they should become less and less significant. Where when we were off the path, we might have had these really high swings and these high lows or these really low lows and these really high highs. And they were happening maybe more frequently, where now with this wisdom and training the mind and really rooting out the pollution, you should notice that that stuff is diminishing and tempering, where the highs aren't as high, the lows aren't as low, and they're more infrequent, and the mind's coming more and more into this middle. Yes, even when we're not enlightened, it seems that, that we're, working, if we're working on the issue and we know what the issue is. And we're actually on the path that itself can be very liberating, it seems, to, to have that awareness. Right. That changes the whole ball game, right? Like when we're off the path and we don't even know what the problem is and we're blaming everyone else, we're just kind of in our own cesspit. We're kind of in our mired in the mud. We're like just being bogged down in the swamp, not being able to make any forward progress whatsoever because we're just in this cesspit of misery and despair where once you get on this path and you have that breakthrough to the four noble truths and you realize that all the problems that you've been experiencing your whole life are all based on what's going on in the mind and this pollution of mind that's where your eyes open up that's why we call it awakening right the mind's awakening and now we can walk towards the light and get out of this darkness that we've been in throughout our whole life and multiple lives before this, we can get out of this darkness and walk towards the light because now our eyes are opened. We realize, oh my goodness, 
all these problems have been caused by me all this time in terms of what I'm experiencing in the mind. Now, if I'm causing them, that means I can eliminate them. It's so empowering. And now you focus on the real problem. And that's why people a couple of months, six months, a year, two years, they can see so much significant progress because they're really focused on the real problem now rather than what we were doing before. We have a question now from Sunday Gospel. What if we don't remember these chanting words? It's okay. If you would like to learn the chants, you can use a, a paper or in this book, Sunday, if you pull this up, I know you use your mobile phone. If you pull this up on your phone, in chapter 11, there's the chants in there. Or you can download the quick reference sheet that I have in the Facebook group under files. There you can build up your memory. You'd like to build up your memory more and more. I think I chanted with these for at least six months when I first started. And that ETP so took me a really long time to learn that one. I wasn't as dedicated as you guys when I first started. So I was really involved in a lot of business things. So it took me probably two, three, four years, maybe even longer to learn that ETP so because I was just kind of dabbling with it. But if you are consistent with it, you can usually learn them in a relatively short period of time. And then as you are able to set aside the paper or your electronic device, then you're working from memory and it'll have a lot more effect for you then. But that would be my suggestion for you is to learn it from the text first and continually work at it slowly but surely building your memory. That's part of the benefits is you're just like exercising a muscle and building up your muscles stronger and stronger by building up the memory in the mind, by memorizing the chance, it's going to build that concentration, that memory in the mind, which is ultimately going to benefit you on the path. Do you recommend that we memorize them before we incorporate them into our meditation? Or is it just as well to read them and then go into meditation? You can read them in off of a paper in terms of as you're chanting, use that as a cue card, so to speak. The place where I would meditate most often I had a one-page laminated sheet that I laminated it so it would stay nice. I wouldn't have to keep printing it over and over again. Is that I always had that near my meditation place. And whenever I would start my meditation, I would bring that out and I would chant. And then I would do the meditation. And afterwards, I would look at that same paper and chant some more. And then I would do that many, many times as part of meditation. And then sometimes I was just interested in working on the chants by themselves. I wasn't actually going to meditate, but I was like, all right, let me just go in here and like do some chanting. And I would just do like I'm doing with you guys, like go through the same chant, you know, three, four, five, six times, just over and over and over and over and over again. Between doing it before and after meditation and doing it as a standalone practice, I slowly, gradually built up to the memorization of these chants. And then sometimes I would even do the chants three times before going into meditation like we did today. And then as I was trying to memorize these, I would even do them three times coming out of meditation as a way to kind of build up the practice. And then slowly but surely, I gained the ability to memorize them and I didn't need the papers anymore. Let's go to Boston now for a question. Last weekend, when I started chanting, I observed some fears in the mind. Is it a kind of conditioning of the mind, or what's the cause? 
Yeah, fear is a discontent feeling. So it's some craving, desire, attachment that's producing that fear. And since we haven't talked about this directly, you know, that's one of the things that chanting helps us do. You know, we talked about that buffer between going from outside into meditation, which chanting is kind of like that little buffer on the way in and on the way out. So this is one of the benefits of chanting is that it helps to ease the mind into meditation. Well, how does it do that? And I've talked about different ways that it does that already, but this is another good example of how chanting does that, is that you guys have heard me talk about the full path that in daily life, as you experience discontentedness, whether it's sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fears, or whatever, as you observe that in daily life, you cut that off and let it go. Well, here, as you're going into meditation, as you're chanting, if you're practicing singleness of mind and you're focused on the chanting and only the chanting, if you observe that a fear is coming into the mind as you're chanting, then that's part of helping you to apply right effort and cut that off and let that go, where instead of getting admired in the fear and kind of soaking the mind in the fear and allowing the fear to permeate in the mind, by doing the chanting, even though you're aware that the fear is there and it's trying to penetrate and get into the mind, you don't allow it. You just stay focused on the chance with singleness of mind, developing your awareness of mind, your awareness of breath, and easing the mind into meditation. So chanting can be a way to redirect the mind and not have it fill up with fear. This is one of the ways that we train Bailan from when he was a very young child, when he was an infant, you know, when he was six months old or whatever, and he started crawling around. If he, you know, bumped his head on a cabinet or something, and we just happened to see that he started crying, we would just scoop him up off the ground, take him over to the window and be like, oh, did you see that bird? Where's that bird? Oh, look at that beautiful tree. Oh, do you see the cloud? You know, we would just make up something that's outside and we would just redirect his mind to something that's going on outside or something wherever we are. We would be like, oh, what is that? Is that a is that a gecko? Like in Thailand, there's geckos running around in your house. Like, oh, is that a gecko? So he would go from "Mm," because he's feeling that pain where he hit his head to ah, where's the gecko? Where's the you know, is there something going on outside? Look at that tree. And then like he would cut it off and let it go right away. And rather than allowing the child or allowing your own mind to sit there and fill up with any discontentedness, what you'd like to do is redirect it towards something else. And chanting can be one of those things that you redirect it to. So like if you're sitting around your house and you're noticing that you're sad or you notice that you're angry or you're noticing that you're complacent or lethargic, just pick up your chance and start chanting. Just redirect the mind to something else. Or if you're noticing any of those same things, complacency, sadness, lethargy, anger, go outside for a walk. That's like redirecting the mind. And I use the example of a baby because we can all kind of relate to that, where if you've ever seen a baby cry, if you just let them sit there and cry, they're just going to cry more and more and more and more. Or if you come over to them when they hit their head and be like, oh, little baby, you hit your head. Oh, it's so bad. Oh, you're going to have a knot on your head now. Oh, it's so bad. Like you're kind of like commiserating with them and it makes them cry even more. 
Whereas if you redirect the mind to something completely different, then they can cut it off and let it go. Without them even knowing what the Eightfold Path is, you can train a six-month-old, a three-month-old, a two-year-old, a five-year-old. You know, you can train them to cut this off and let it go, this discontentedness, by redirecting their mind. And then as you see how that works with a child, then you know for yourself it's the same way, whether it's chanting or going out for a walk or meditating. What you're trying to do is you're trying to break this cycle this loop where the mind's on this loop of I'm sad, I'm sad, I'm sad, I'm sad, I'm sad, or I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm fearful, I'm fearful, I'm fearful, I'm filter, you know, I feel guilty, guilty, guilty. It's almost like a loop. The mind's on this loop and you're trying to break that mind out of the loop. And what you do is you redirect it to something else. And over time, you get more and more creative about the different things that you can redirect the mind to. What the mind's gonna want to do, because when it doesn't have wisdom, when the mind feels those painful feelings of sadness, anger, frustration, it's gonna wanna chase pleasant feelings. It thinks that the pleasant feelings is what's gonna stop these painful feelings. So the whole reason why the mind is experiencing the painful feelings is because of craving, desire, attachment. And without wisdom, the mind then chases pleasant feelings. We go after drugs or alcohol or sex or gambling or shopping or something like this. The mind's going to try to get rid of these painful feelings of sadness, anger, frustration, guilt, shame, fear, all of these things by chasing after pleasant feelings. But we know when you chase after pleasant feelings, that's just reinforcing the craving, desire, attachment. And it's only a matter of time before those pleasant feelings end and you're right back in painful feelings again. So when you're experiencing painful feelings, rather than chase the pleasant feelings, now that you have this wisdom, what you do is instead is you redirect the mind towards something else, something wholesome. Go for a walk. Go for a bike ride. Go for a jog. Go gardening in the garden. Do some chanting or any of these other things. So with you, Bossum, if you notice that fear coming in while you're chanting, then just keep chanting. And maybe you even intended only do the chants one time and then go into meditation. But maybe as you're chanting, if you're noticing the fear coming in, do two or three times through the chants. And that's a way to redirect the mind away from that fear. And now instead of chasing the pleasant feelings, we have a real solution which will break this cycle of fear, 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 you know, guilt, 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 shame, 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 shame. We're trying to break that and kind of rewire the mind so that it will no longer stay in this cycle, right? This cycle of rebirth. That's why we know that the cycle of rebirth is there because we see, and some people have observed their past lives, but you can see it in your own life when the mind's on that cycle of guilt, 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 fear, 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 Sadness, sadness, sad. That's the cycle. That's the cycle that the mind's on. And that's reminding you that, hey, you're still in the cycle of rebirth. You've got to break this cycle and get out of it. Well, does this mean that the mind experiences painful feelings because the mind experiences pleasant feelings in the opposite situations? The mind is experiencing pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant because of craving. That's what's causing the mind to be discontent. 
craving, desire, attachment, clinging, expectations, wants, holding, grasping. That's what's causing all the discontentedness. But what the unenlightened mind does, and the reason why the Buddha lists them in this order, is that it chases pleasant feelings. The mind wants to permanently feel pleasant feelings. It wants to feel happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. It wants this and it wants to hold on to it. So the mind chases the objects of its affection. New car, new shoes, new boyfriend, new girlfriend, new little gadget. It's just going to chase after the objects of its affection, thinking that this next new shiny object is what's going to satisfy the mind. But when it does that, it's reinforcing craving, desire, attachment. It's still allowing the craving, desire, attachment to persist. And as long as we allow it to persist and we chase those pleasant feelings, basing the inner feelings on these impermanent conditions, then it's only a matter of time before we experience painful feelings. And it can be exactly the opposite thing. So let me give you an example. If people tell you, oh, Bossom, you're so handsome. You're such a handsome guy. And you allow pleasant feelings to arise in the mind because of that. And you get happy. You get excited. Like, oh, wow, people think I'm so handsome. Well, it's only a matter of time before somebody comes along and, and says something derogatory to you and says that you're not handsome in some derogatory way because these pleasant feelings of hearing people say that you're handsome isn't permanent and if you base your inner feelings on this condition of people telling you you're handsome then when people say something derogatory or you don't hear somebody say that you're handsome maybe people just stop telling you that for one reason or another then the mind's going to experience painful feelings because the mind is already adapted to basing its inner feelings on some impermanent condition. It's basing its feelings on this condition of hearing that I'm handsome. So then when people don't tell me that, or when people tell me the opposite, now I'm going to base my feelings off of that. And it's only going to produce painful feelings because now the mind is accustomed to basing its feelings on some impermanent conditions. So what we're training the mind to do throughout this whole path is to stop basing its inner feelings on some impermanent condition. You're welcome. You opened up today, David, with a little discussion about bowing or whying. And I've occasionally noticed this instinct in myself to, to do that. It seems to communicate something that we don't exactly have a way of communicating in the West. And I was wondering, do you advise that even if we're in cultures where that's not a common practice, that we would do that sometimes? Yeah, you can do this. I used to do this in America when I lived in America. And it's such a great way to start a conversation, isn't it? Or to start a relationship is like, hello, I respect you, right? And, and, I, and I'm interested in being very polite with you you'll notice that your relationships can really blossom. And then you end your conversation that way too. I mean, like you said, it's a nonverbal communication that communicates something that we just don't have the ability to communicate in Western culture with just a handshake. So you can incorporate this into your practice and into interacting with people. Even my wife and I here in the house, 
there's days where we will be whying each other and thanking each other. Like if she says, hey, can I borrow some money to go to the store? I need to go get some vegetables. You know, the ATM's broken down the street or whatever. Like, sure, here you go. And then she'll why me. Or like today, like she cooked me some food and I why her and show respect to her. And even my son, you know, like sometimes he'll bring me a glass of water at the table when I'm eating food and I'll why him and say thank you to him uh, with a why. And this can be not only in your own family unit and the people that you're around regularly, but people outside too. It's such a beautiful way to start a conversation, particularly if you haven't seen people for a long period of time or uh, if you interact with people here and there or uh, even regularly, that people know that your interest is to be polite, kind, and respectful to them. Because oftentimes with language, the unenlightened mind kind of looks out for enemies. This is the way the unenlightened mind works. We'll talk about this on Sunday with anger, hatred, and ill will. Is the mind in the unenlightened state, which the vast majority of the world is unenlightened. So they're kind of looking out like, is there something in his tone? Is there something in his word choice? What is it? You know, like, is this guy being polite to me or not? Like, I don't really know, particularly in the English language, because we don't really know. Here in Thailand, in their language, they have it built in. Like when I say sawadee kap, that kap at the end tells people that I'm being polite. It's like, hey, I'm interested in being polite to you. So if someone was just like sawadee, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> that <laughs> That isn't as polite as saying sawadee kap or sawadee kap home. We have these words in the Thai language that signify right away from the very beginning when you start talking to somebody that I'm being polite with you and I'm being friendly, I'm being respectful. But we don't have those things in English language except for maybe yes, sir, yes, ma'am, things like this. This is why in English I speak with yes, sir, yes, ma'am to bring that in so people know like right from the beginning of the conversation that I'm interested in being polite and respectful with you because that puts the conversation and the relationship on a whole different footing. When it's completely clear and out in the open that, hey, I'm interested in being polite and kind and friendly with you. I'm interested in being respectful with you. It brings the conversation to a whole nother level. And the person is now very interested and has a different mindset of having this conversation with you. Whereas if it's somebody new that doesn't really know you or they haven't seen you for a while and they're not quite sure if you're being polite or respectful, their mind is kind of almost confused and almost trying to figure out, is this person being polite and friendly or are they being respectful to me or not? That's how the unenlightened mind looks. It's always kind of judging. It's always measuring and comparing almost fearfully and looking out for enemies around us. It's almost like an animal looking out for predators. Well, if you can use this in your language, in English, saying yes, sir, yes, ma'am, you can use this gesture of a why. You can put the person's mind at ease right from the beginning of the conversation that you're interested in politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respectfulness. And even if they're choosing not to reciprocate those same qualities, at least you're practicing in a way that is. So when we do these things, we should do them for our own practice, not because we're expecting others to react or respond to us in a certain way. Because if we 
are only whying someone because we expect them to why us too. Now the mind is craving. It's going to be discontent because other people aren't going to why you. Other people aren't going to necessarily respect you just because you're being respectful. But the more that you are respectful, the more that you are polite, you'll notice more and more people will be polite with you. So when you're whying people or you're speaking in polite, kind, friendly, respectful ways, always keep in mind that you're doing this for your practice. You're doing this for for your practice and to ensure that your mind doesn't have any pollution and that if someone else chooses to not reciprocate that, then that's on them. That's their practice. But don't have the expectation that they're going to automatically reciprocate what it is that you're putting out. So even though this natural law of gamma is what you put out comes back to you, you might have people around you where you're trying to be appreciative, you're trying to show gratitude, you're trying to be respectful, and there might be still some people in your life that are just vindictive, aggressive, and hostile. And sometimes even the more politeness you put out, the more aggressive and hostile they are because they're still living in the darkness, but you're walking towards the light. So whenever you're practicing something like this, you should always be thinking that you're doing this for your practice, not to impress other people or not because you want something back from other people. Thank you, David. That seems to be all the questions we have for today. All right. Well, I'll thank all of you for joining for today's class, whether you're on Facebook, YouTube, Zoom, listening to this on the replay or our podcast. Thank you all for your dedication to learning and growing with the Buddhist teachings. This Sunday in the group learning program, we're going to be in chapter eight, which is titled Transforming the Three Poisons, Craving, Anger, and Ignorance. This is where you really open up to all the individual problems that are in the mind of the unenlightened mind. We talk about craving, desire, attachment a lot as part of this path because it's the primary aspect of the mind that's keeping it experiencing this discontentedness. That's what's continuing to allow the discontentedness to go on. So we spend a lot of time talking about craving, desire, attachment. But there's these other two problems, this anger and ignorance that is really affecting the mind and keeping it in the unenlightened state. So starting on Sunday, we're going to open up to exploring more of the problems and uncovering more of the problems and sharing more of the solutions of how to solve this so that you can move the mind closer and closer to this enlightened mental state where it can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. So you can either read that chapter before or after or maybe before and after class. And on Sunday, I'll be sharing a talk on that. Next Wednesday will be our last class with chanting. It'll be the fourth of the four-part series. And we will probably do the same thing that we did today, which is chanting the chants three times and then going into meditation and coming out. But then that following Wednesday, we're going to go back into our rotation of doing breathing mindfulness meditation one week, loving kindness the next week, breathing mindfulness one week, loving kindness the next week. So we'll start rotating these every week. Now that we've had three, four part sessions, we have everything put together where we can chant. We can go into breathing mindfulness meditation. We can do loving kindness meditation, and then we can chant on the way out. So now for the rest of the group learning program, we'll just rotate those 
breathing mindfulness and loving kindness with the chanting incorporated in because over this three month period, I've now built up the students to be able to fully practice chanting, breathing mindfulness and loving kindness meditation. So we'll see you guys either on Sunday or Wednesday, perhaps both. In the meantime, have a wonderful rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.